Adversity is inevitable, isn't it? But even though adversity is inevitable, none of us would actually write our story that way, would we? When you're in the 11th grade and you write the composition paper about what your life is going to look like one day, it never includes a car accident that leads to an exploded vertebrae, does it? It never leads to having a husband that is disabled and unable to provide and unable to work and that requires your every moment's care. Now, when we write our own stories, we write about this ascent through life as things are always getting better and money is always coming in and marriage is always exciting and romantic. Then our hair starts to thin, our waistline starts to expand, and we realize this life isn't going to go exactly the way that we have it charted to go. But what's ironic is even though none of us would intentionally write our stories that way, whenever we write stories about someone else, whenever we write a narrative that is about another person's life, another person's adventure, we never write their life as being smooth, do we? We never write their life as being adversity free. Like you watch Jack Bauer on 24 and if everything is going rosy in the country and life is smooth for Jack Bauer, that's a pretty dull show. No, what we need in Jack's life is we need crisis. We, we need insurmountable odds. We need to see him knocked flat because we already know that in the big picture, Jack's gonna succeed. The nation is gonna carry on and we just don't know how it's gonna happen yet. And so we like to watch him in adversity because we understand that it's adversity that gives him depth to his character. It's adversity that makes him real. It's adversity that lets us identify with him. It's adversity that shows who he can ultimately become. This is what we're gonna see today in the life of Paul. We're gonna see in the life of Paul is that Paul is facing incredible adversity in his life. And he has a choice. He can either zoom in on the adversity and be overcome or he can zoom out, see the big picture and have some perspective that allows him to overcome the adversity in a way that brings glory to Christ. And so this morning, what I want us to see is Paul's perspective on adversity. If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead now and turn with me to Philippians chapter one? <laughs> Philippians chapter one, we're gonna begin in verse 12 today. When you get to Philippians chapter one, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Verse 12 says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You may be seated. 
If you're here this morning and you weren't able to get a bulletin in our bulletins, we have a, a sermon guide there that allows you to follow through. And if you would like one of those, would you just raise your hand? We have some handsome gentlemen that'll be sure to get you so that you'll be able to follow along with notes throughout. You know, it's really amazing how different something can appear as a result of perspective, isn't it? That if you were to take just one drop of water and you were to place that drop of water under a microscope, you begin to see little tiny organisms and the more you zoom in on them, the more you magnify them, the more terrifying they become, right? Like you have this, this little drop of water and suddenly you zoom in on that drop of water with a magnifying glass and it looks like there's these soul-crushing piranhas that are in the water that we drink, right? But if you place that same drop of water into a river, and you go up on the highest point and you overlook the river and you can see the mountains in the backdrop and the deer drinking the water, all of a sudden that very same drop of water that caused you to be terrified, that very same drop of water that caused you to be concerned and anxious suddenly brings rest to your soul, doesn't it? It brings rest. That we can zoom in and magnify the issues of the water or we can zoom out and take in the panorama of what all is represented. What's true is this is the same for us in our lives. It's so easy when we have concerns and problems and issues to cope with, to zoom in and to magnify our issues, isn't it? We have a fight in our marriage and we assume our marriage is over. If you're like me, you get a cold and suddenly you believe you have cancer because you, you, you get these issues and you zoom in on them. And you, the more you zoom in, the bigger they become, the more insurmountable they appear and they begin to cause you to, to uh, become anxious and overcome and overwhelmed, right? But if you zoom out, if you zoom out and you look at your life in, from the big picture perspective, Suddenly you start to remember, you know, I had a problem once before and everything's okay. I, I thought I was going to be overwhelmed and overcome back then, but that worked out fine. I bet this will be the same. Y you begin to realize that, you know, life is going to be a lot bigger than this fight. Life is going to be a lot bigger than this worry. Life is going to be a lot bigger than this concern. So I zoom out and my heart that was racing, my heart that was magnifying the smallest problem to make it appear insurmountable is certainly, is suddenly put to rest. See, the gospel is always calling for us to zoom out. The gospel is always calling for us to zoom out. The gospel is always calling for us to remember that God is at work and God isn't yet finished working. That God is doing something, he's doing something right now, but he's doing something that will be ultimately brought to completion. He's doing something that right now may hurt more than anything, but that one day down the road, you will be able to say, that was good for me, praise God that we can face the most difficult situations in our life and zooming out to see the panorama of the meta-narrative of all that God is actually doing, to see the full river of his providence at live in our lives allows us to zoom out and to see with a perspective that doesn't magnify our problems, but rather, as we're gonna see in a few minutes, magnifies Christ. And this is Paul's perspective. This is Paul's perspective. 
Paul opens in verse 12 and he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. That this is not good for me and I don't enjoy this, but this situation that I find myself in, when I zoom out to take it in, what I can see is that this isn't a, a detriment, this is an advancement. This is advancing the gospel. So the first thing I want us to see about Paul's perspective is that Paul says, whether I'm free or not, the gospel will advance. Whether I'm free or not, the gospel will advance. Whether I'm in prison or not, the gospel will advance. Whether I'm in chains or not, the gospel will advance. In verses 12, 14, we can summarize Paul as saying, my circumstances aren't good. I wish that I weren't in prison and that I was with you, but my apparent misfortune is being used by God to accomplish what I'm aiming to accomplish anyway. The advancement of the gospel. What we have in of Philippians chapter one is we have Paul given a missionary report, right? And this is a different kind of missionary report than, than we're used to uh, hearing, right? Like we're used to hearing, you know, like I was facing cannibals and dysentery and then God showed up and revival came and it's all been great. And I'm so glad that I am there. But Paul doesn't give those kind of trivial missionary reports. Paul gives a real life missionary report. He says, I'm in chains, man. I'm locked up. I want to be with you, but that's not even possible for me. I can't get to you because I'm in jail and I don't want to be in jail. I want it to be different than it is. But, but I comfort myself. I give myself a healthy perspective in realizing that even though I'm not where I'm wa I want to be, and even though I'm not doing what I want to be doing, and even though I'm not going where I want to go, what I can say is that I am accomplishing what God has set before me to accomplish. God has called me, challenged me to, to advance the gospel. And I can tell you that even in prison, your funds are not wasted. Your support is not erroneous. No, I am here and I am advancing the gospel. See, Paul had streamlined his life in a way that would be helpful for all of us. He had streamlined his life with a singular focus that simplified his life so that even in hardship, even in frustration, he could be joyful. The word gospel appears in the book of Philippians more per square inch than any other book in the New Testament. It occurs nine times in only four chapters. And so what Paul is, is showing us is that this is the reason that he's able to say the gospel is advancing, but the gospel advancing is the very reason in which he is able to have joy in a situation that it seems impossible to have joy in. That is the gospel streamlines life so that every circumstance is an advancement. The gospel streamlines life. I hope you hear the glory and the encouragement of, of that sentence. The gospel streamlines life so that every circumstance, good or bad, fun or miserable, exciting or terrifying, is an advancement. For Paul, his life was not about his 401k. For Paul, life wasn't about buying a starter home, going, moving to a family home and graduating into a retirement home. It wasn't about a steady ascent through life. No, for Paul, life was about being a vessel of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that he could say that marriage, marriage is not about a husband and a wife. Marriage is about the gospel. Parenting, parenting isn't about mom and dad and little Johnny. Like parenting is about the gospel. Suffering isn't about oh me and what am I gonna do and how am I gonna make it? No, suffering is about the gospel. 
That the gospel is in play in all of it. The gospel is in play in every circumstance that we find ourselves in. The gospel is in play in every insurmountable problem that we face. The gospel is in play in whatever we aim to do in life. If we are believers of Jesus Christ, the gospel is at work. And God is positioning us, no matter how painful, no matter how difficult, the God is positioning us by his providence to advance the gospel. What we get in the early stages of the missionary movement that Paul is spearheading is that they're reaching all of the poor. Christianity begins literally as a religion of the poor, but they can't get into the imperial leadership of Rome. Rome is the superpower and they just, they can't penetrate. They can't get the influencers to potentially be shaping society in an even bigger way and see more and more people come under the, the reign in the kingdom of God. And so try as he might, he has, hasn't been effective. So what does God do? He sends him to a prison where he is literally chained to the imperial guard. It is the most influential wing of the Roman military. The Imperial Guard had a double pension, a double salary, and double honor of all of the other members of the military. They were hand chosen by the Caesar himself. In fact, in a few generations, the Caesar will have to be approved by the Imperial Guard. That's the kind of influence that we're talking about. And what has Paul's aim been all along? To reach those in the Imperial household. And here he is, here he is. And he is literally chained to their soldiers. And so Paul says, you know, I can be miserable because of my chains. I can can be anxious because of my chains. I can be in despair and misery because of my chains. Or I can see that God has sent me as a missionary where he always intended for me to go. He has allowed me to become who I'd always wanted to be, a preacher in the empire. Here I am chained to my very oppressors. And what am I doing to my oppressors? I am setting them free with the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Paul has the singular focus in his life so that he could find peace and joy even in prison because it's the gospel, the advancement of the gospel through his life, which was unstoppably taking place by the power of God. See, Paul wasn't a victim from his perspective. You see that? Like if we're in Paul's situation, if I'm in Paul's situation, man, I am throwing the pity party of all pity parties. Like God, I, I am preaching for you. I am already sacrificing for you. I've already left my home. I've already left my people. I am betrayed by Rome and forsaken by the Hebrews. And here I am, and you can't even just let me eat a good meal. You can't even let me have my freedom. But Paul wasn't a victim. He was a vessel. It's profoundly different. And this is the opportunity that the gospel affords us, that we don't live as victims, we live as vessels. Painful as it is, victimized as we are, if the gospel is the singular focus of our lives, we can walk through the downturns of life certain that the gospel will advance for us. That because of Christ, there is a way for you to cope with rebelling children that advances the gospel. That because of Christ, there is a way for you to deal with the loss of a job in a way that advances the gospel. 
In other words, even though your life doesn't go according to your plan, even though your life doesn't go the way that you would write it, even though your life doesn't become what you would want it to become, you can still find yourself accomplishing the singular focus that God has given to you, that you, because the gospel is undefeated and unstoppable, do not live as a victim, rather you live as a victor, more than a conqueror in Christ Jesus, that you will be unstoppable to accomplish God's sovereign will for your life so you can go and go and go and whatever setbacks you find, whatever downturns you face, you can find contentment and joy and peace. Not because your life is easy and everything is good, but because God is still on his throne and Christ is still being glorified and you are still living out your focus to advance the gospel. In other words, if rather than zooming in on the rebellious child, instead of zooming in on the loss of your job, if you will zoom out and remember whose plan you're living, if you will zoom out and remember what God is doing, it'll reset your heart in a way that brings you comfort and joy. See, he says, he gives kind of two reasons that he's, he knows he's advancing the gospel. One, he's pre- preaching to his oppressors, but then he gives a second reason, doesn't he? He says, not only that, but most of the brothers are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul has, has this, this other layer to his perspective. He's able to say, not only has God sent me where I've always wanted to go, not only am I preaching to the people that I've had no opportunity to preach, but I look out and the brothers seeing me in prison are preaching more boldly. All of a sudden, Paul is in prison and Paul is struggling and he realizes that his struggle is inspiring the church. That is raising up new preachers. All of a sudden, their spines are stiffening and their voices are becoming stronger and their hands are stopping to shake. And they're saying, if Paul can endure that for the advancement of the gospel, I can preach in freedom for the advancement of the gospel. The the Romans thought that they could put Paul in prison and putting Paul in prison would stop the movement of the gospel. But what they discover is that putting away Paul in prison is like trying to kill kudzu by pruning it. You cut it back and all of a sudden five new sprouts shoot up, man. They put Paul in prison and they think they finally silenced this guy and now preachers are shooting up everywhere and they've got the courage of Paul and the message of Paul and the gospel of Paul. And so Paul says, I'm in here and I'm reaching my oppressors, but not only am I in here reaching my oppressors, but God is raising up new prophets. God is raising up new church planters. Oh, the gospel is advancing in my chains. The gospel is advancing in my struggle. See, Suffering is something that can be an opportunity for worship or it can be something that you can waste and fall into depression. Suffering amplifies our trust or distrust of Christ one way or the other. Suffering amplifies our trust or distrust of Christ. It declares Jesus' worth as to whether or not you believe that Jesus is worthy of all of your life despite what you're facing or, or if you would say, Jesus, this is just too much. Jesus, this is just too far. That your suffering will either inspire courage and faithfulness in your church family or it will bring doubt and disillusionment to those that watch you. 
that your suffering will either be used by God to say, the Lord is on the throne and whether it is hard or whether it is good, I will praise the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or you can ask God, why me? How could you? Who do you think you are? And all of these are value statements of Christ. All of these show whether or not your confidence is in you, in your income, or in Christ. I can think throughout our church family, how many of you have been used in my life and how many of you have been used in the life of our church to inspire forward faithfulness. I can think of times in my life in which I wasn't feeling well and in which I was really tempted to throw like a big pity party and just be over all of life. And I would think about Kathy Jacks and all that she's faced and all that she's endured and the smile that's on her face and the joy that she brings. And I would think, man, if, you, if she can do that, if Kathy can endure that, oh Lord, forgive me, forgive me. I've watched as Linda Cockrell and Rhonda Turner and Glenn Duncan have ministered to people in our church family through their suffering through their suffering. Brothers and sisters, do not waste the suffering that you have. Do not waste the hardship that you have. No, entrust it into the hands of Almighty and sovereign God that He will take your suffering and advance the gospel. That He will take your suffering and inspire the church. That He will take your suffering and use it for His glory and for His good so that the church isn't pushed back by your suffering, but the church is propelled forward. Don't waste your cancer. Don't waste your sadness. Don't waste your hardship. Zoom out and see what God is doing in the big picture. The second shift in perspective that we see is that Paul says, whether I preach or someone else preaches, the gospel will be proclaimed. Whether I preach or someone else, the gospel will be proclaimed. So let, let's zoom in here for a second. Like, I don't know exactly how many of you this would fit, but like if you've ever been really, really passionate about something, like you've been really, really ambitious about something, like, like you look at your job and your job is not just like a, a nine to five, let me clock in, clock out and go home kind of thing. Like, like it is your life. It is something that ex exhilarates you and energizes you and, and you're ambitious and you wanna see yourself move forward. Like, like if, if you can identify with that, you can identify with Paul here. You can identify with Paul here. Like, Paul is a church planning machine. Paul is the foremost of all of the, of the apostles in, in the Gentile world, especially. And he is there, man, and he wants to lead the churches and he wants to preach the gospel. And he, he is ambitious for the kingdom of God to see what can come and what it can grow into. And now he's in jail. And if you've ever been in a situation like that, where you were all in and you were called and like it was your thing and then all of a sudden you were taken out of it? It's like suffering a death, isn't it? It's like suffering a death. And all kinds of thoughts begin to creep into your mind. You begin to think, well, does my life really even matter? Are they even gonna miss me? Like, like is anything about me matter to them? Like, did I bring any value to the company? Did I bring any value to the church? Did I bring any value the minute, and then you like you start like rushing it to come back faster than you should because you think, man, all those young guns are gonna come in and like steal my thunder and do their thing. Can't you imagine how tempted Paul would have been? He's here and he's getting reports that all kinds of preachers are being raised up, right? And Paul is the preacher, man. Paul is the preacher. Paul is the leader. Paul is the one that everybody has been going to. 
how easy it would have been for him to be jealous. How easy it would have been for him to zoom in and to think, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, I'm done. Like, I am totally insignificant in what's happening here. But instead, instead he says, you know, I rejoice over the preachers that God is raising up. I rejoice. He says there's two different kinds. There's two different types, of, and it's, it makes his rejoicing all the strangers. There's two different kinds. Like there's one type of preacher that God has raised up, and he is preaching because he loves me. Because he's, he wants to see the work continued. He wants to see the work advanced. In other words, he doesn't seek to replace me. He wants to replicate me. He wants to take our mission and advance it forward. But there's another kind of preacher, and he's not preaching because he loves. He's not preaching because he's in alignment with me. He's preaching because he sees this as an opportunity for himself. He's preaching out of envy. He's preaching out of rivalry. He has seen my platform and he has seen my agenda and he aspires to have what I have. And so he is rising up in some way to take advantage of my hardship, to correct all the teachings that he thinks that I've messed up. But Paul says, you know, I don't really care about any of that though. It doesn't really matter. Now, now, we need to be sure to understand that Paul is not here talking about false teachers, even those that are preaching out of envy and out of false pretense. He doesn't believe them to be false teachers. Paul is like this lion over here when it comes to false teachers. Like in Galatians 5, you turn there, you have people that are trying to add to the law and, and add to the gospel and change the gospel. And like Paul smashes them with a hammer, man. But these, these, they're not preaching a bad message. The character of their heart is flawed. The character of their motive is flawed, but but their message is Christ. And so Paul has a lesson that so many of us could learn. He is so big hearted. He is so passionate. He is so singularly focused on the gospel that he is able to say, you know, I don't care that we have some disagreements. I don't really even care what their motive is. I don't even really care what their end game is. What I know is, is that they are preaching Christ, whether out of love or out of envy, they are preaching Christ. And if they are preaching Christ, that is sufficient with me. I can live with that. I can rest in that. Because this isn't about my platform or their platform. This isn't about my agenda or their agenda. This isn't about my ambition or their ambition. What this is about is this is about the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let them try to undermine me. Let them try to do away with my ministry. They're only going to serve to advance what I want because all, the only thing that I want is for Christ to be preached and they're doing that. So they think they're stopping me, but they're really just taking forward what I'm trying to accomplish. In other words, what Paul is doing is Paul is putting down his own reputation. You see that? Paul's not worried about his own reputation. Pa- Paul's not worried about what the other preachers in town think about him. Pa- Paul's not worried about what all the other churches think about his churches. Paul's not worried about what his neighbor at the ball field thinks about his family and the way that he's raising his kids and the way that he's leading his wife. Paul's not worried about what the community thinks about how he spends his money. Paul's not worried about all of that. He is laying down his reputation. He's saying, is Christ being preached? Is the gospel being advanced? I don't care about anything else. How much of your stress, how much of your worry How much of your anxiety would melt away if you weren't worried about what anybody else thought about you? How much of your stress would melt away if you weren't worried about looking bad and instead you were concerned only that Christ looked good? How much of your worry would cease to be if your singular concern was the glory of Christ rather than the approval of your friends and colleagues and neighbors? 
What if, what if you could begin living in a freedom that allowed you to prioritize the worship of the church over little league ball? And even though everybody looked down upon you and even though everybody else reviled you and even though everybody else was annoyed by you, you could say, I don't care. So much as Christ is glorified. Think of me what you wish. Think of my family, what you want. We don't care what you think of us. What we care about is Christ. Is Christ being highly revered here? Is Christ being highly thought of here? Not my reputation, but the reputation of Christ. What if even as a grown adult, when you, you begin to date in a way that was radical for the world, you're sing single in a world that makes you feel like you're just always on the outside looking in. But what if you said, I'm not ever gonna be alone with someone in the opposite sex, even as an adult, not because I think it's gonna help me, because that's gonna make people look at me like I'm weird. It's gonna make people feel irritated by me. That's gonna make people be uncomfortable with me. But I'm not concerned about people being uncomfortable with me. I'm not concerned with people thinking I'm weird. Instead, what I'm concerned with is this christ glorified? Is Christ glorified? Is Christ's reputation upheld? You see, if that's your singular concern, it simplifies life and it melts away concern. Because I don't need the approval of my boss to feel good about myself. I, I don't need the approval of my neighbors to think that I'm living an effective life. I don't need the approval of the mom group or the ball-filled dads. All I need, all I need is that Christ is glorified. And if Christ is glorified, ah, that is sufficient for me. See, what the trouble is, is that we want to live like the world and have the approval of Christ at the same time. And nothing produces anxiety in the heart of a Christian like seeking the approval of both God and neighbors. Nothing produces anxiety in the heart of the Christian, like trying to get the approval of your neighbor, the approval of your colleagues, the approval of your friends, and at the same time, living for the pleasure of God. And the truth is, the irony is, that if you are seeking the approval of both God and man, you have already forfeited the approval of God because God has said, I require of you that you love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So this morning, I wonder if you'd lay down your reputation. I wonder if you'd be willing to zoom out and say, from the big picture, it doesn't really matter what my neighbor thinks about me. In the big picture, it doesn't really matter that everybody else thinks that I'm raising my kids the right way. In the big picture, it doesn't really matter that everybody thinks that I'm dating the right way. In the big picture, the only thing that will matter is on the day of Jesus Christ, when I stand before him in the separation, he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And brothers and sisters, you will feel the anxiety and the worry of your heart begin to melt away. The final perspective that we see in the life of Paul is he says, ultimately, verse 20, whether I live or die, the gospel will magnify Christ. Whether I live or die, the gospel will magnify Christ. Is, verse 20 is honestly a, a very convicting verse, isn't it? Like you read verse 20 and it kind of undoes you a little bit. He says, Christ will be honored. The word honored that he uses in verse 20, it may even be translated in your Bible as magnified. It, it means literally to make something look bigger. So Christ will be honored, will be magnified by my body, whether by life or by death. But as convicting as that is, it's really set up by verse 19. In verse 19, he says, all of these things are gonna be worked out for my deliverance. And it is a direct quote from Job chapter 13. 
He's quoting from the Old Testament. He's identifying himself with Job and it is a perfect identification. You remember who Job is? Job is the man that had it all. And and not only did he have it all, but Job loved the Lord. The Bible says that Job was a righteous man and that Job was, was pleasing to the Lord. And ultimately Job, though he loved God and though he honored God and though he walked with God is afflicted. He loses his family, he loses his wealth, he loses his health and he loses them singularly for the reason that he loves God more than all the other. And yet Job is able to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The good Lord takes and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And Paul is looking at Job and in Job, he sees something of himself. Paul is in prison because he loves God. Paul is in prison because he's preaching Christ. Paul is in prison because he's seeking to advance the gospel. Paul is in prison because he is seeking to live a a holy and justified life in the eyes of God for the glory of Christ. And so he sees what happened in Job is happening to him. Paul has lost his health. Paul has lost his wealth. Paul Paul has lost his citizenship. Paul is here and he seems hopeless. And yet, yet he's able to have the same hope that Job had. He's able to say the same thing that Job said. Job said, I don't know what all of this means. I don't know the reason behind it all. His ways are not my ways. But what I know is I know that the Lord will justify me. I know that the Lord will vindicate me. I know that the Lord will save me. I know that the Lord will deliver me ultimately. And you see, brothers and sisters, this is the essence of Christian perseverance. This is the essence of Christian perseverance. Christians persevere not because it's easy. Christians persevere not because God smooths out our life's journey like some kind of road grader. Christians persevere because of what we know. If you remember Job's story, Job didn't always feel good about his circumstances, did he? In fact, Job would often say, "I, I feel awful. I feel like I should die. I feel as though I should have never been born. But I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that God will justify. I know that all of this is going to be okay. And it's the same for Paul. Like for P- Paul is not happy that he's in jail. Paul's not saying that this is a good thing that it's happened to me. This is a bad thing that has happened to me. What, what I know is that God will make sure that I will not be put to shame. Even though I feel bad about it, even though I feel unhappy about it, even though I feel downright miserable about it, what I know is that God will vindicate me. See, we learn from Job and from Paul that Christians don't have to pretend like everything is good even when it isn't. So I think there's a, there's a, a misapplication and even borderline abusive application of Romans 8, 28, where we say all things work together for the good of those who love God. And I think we, we go into situations where people have faced devastating loss, when people are in the midst of horrendous depression, where people are dealing and coping with, with the very worst day of their life. And we go, well, you know, it's all good though, right? You know, this is good. This is a good thing that's happened to you. It's good that you have cancer. It's good that you've miscarried. It's good that you've lost your child. It's good that you've lost your husband because God says all things work together for the good. No, brothers and sisters, we will face injustice and we will face abuse 
And we will face horrible situations and we have no responsibility as Christians to sanitize our tears as though they are not real tears and sanitize our anger as though it is not real anger. What we have instead, what makes us different, what makes us distinct from the world is not what we feel. It is what we know. It is to know that we have an assurance in Christ that gets us through all of these things and allows us to persevere. It is assurance that is a Christian distinctive. There's no other place that you can go, no other system that you can find, no other religion that you can place your hope in that will bring you assurance. You go and you find naturalists and atheists. What assurance do they have? The the Islamic faith offers you no promise that you will even get to paradise. You walk with karma and you don't really know if it's coming back to you or if it's going out from you. But Christ Christ says, I will deliver you. I will set you free. I will hold you fast. I will ensure that you keep going because I'm going with you. I went to the cross and I will go with you to the cross. I will go to sleep with you even though you are in the valley and I will promise you that my mercies will be new in the morning. You see, the difference between joy and anxiety is assurance. The difference between joy and anxiety is assurance. It's not circumstances. It's not more money. It's not a more secure uh, paycheck or savings account. The difference is, is assurance. And three different times in two verses, verses 19 and verse 20, Paul uses terms that refer to assurance. He says in verse 19, I know, I know. Then in verse 20, he says, my eager expectation. It's a word that paints a picture. Of, of leaning forward and not being distracted, having blinders on and saying, I know I'm headed in the right way, even if it doesn't look like it, and I will not be pulled one way or the other. I am certain, I am assured that this is the right direction. Then he says, hope, hope. It is, this is not a pipe dream hope. This is a hope that has content, a hope that has assurance that Christ has risen. See, assurance is the opposite of anxiety. Anxiety asks, what do you feel? Assurance asks, what do you know? And that brings us to verse 20, that powerful and penetrating verse in which Paul says, I will face my life with courage, with full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored. Christ will be glorified. Christ will be magnified in my body. I will face worry and opposition with courage. I will face loss with courage. I will face sadness with courage, not because of what I feel, but because of what I know. See, brothers and sisters, courage is doing what you know in spite of what you feel. Courage is doing what you know in spite of what you feel. Courage is telling your worried mind that you know God is in control and living like it. Courage is telling your shaking hands that this will work out for good and living like it. Courage is telling the condemning voice that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and living like it. Courage is zooming out in a situation that is overwhelming and seemingly insurmountable and saying, I will not magnify my problem. I will not zoom in on my anxiety 
I will zoom out and magnify Christ. I will make Christ bigger. I will make Christ more pronounced. I will see that Christ is greater than all my fears and all my troubles and all my travails. I will look not at what is in front of me, but he who is above me. And knowing he who is above me, I can say whether I live or I die, whether my life is easy or whether it is hard, whether it is exciting or it is discouraging, Christ will be magnified. That I am assured. Brothers and sisters this morning, what are you magnifying in your life? Are you magnifying your worries? Are you magnifying your hardships? Are you magnifying your problems? Are you magnifying your anxieties? Or are you magnifying Christ with your assurance and faith in him? Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Cody Hill. I'm the lead pastor here at Iron City. Thank you so much for connecting with us online. I hope in the days ahead that we'll have an opportunity to connect with you in person. On our website, ironcity.org, you'll see a number of different opportunities that you have to connect with our church and opportunities that we're seeking to engage our community and minister to our church family. I'd like to especially invite you to come and be a part of one of our connection groups that meet at nine o'clock immediately preceding our Sunday morning worship service. You'll find that we're not a perfect church, but we are a passionate church. We take following Jesus very seriously, but we try not to take ourselves too seriously. So I hope you'll come this Sunday at 1015 and worship with us and let us get to know you a little bit better.